Hey, it's Luke. First thing off the top, sorry about my voice. Allergy season hitting hard, and it sounds like I'm talking through a glass of milk. But some things are so important, you just gotta play through the phlegm. We are at the end of Asian American and Native Hawaiian slash Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and hopefully you've had a chance to go to one of the many events hosted around town, celebrating the rich and almost unfathomably diverse peoples and cultures represented under that massive umbrella. The majority of those events, at least to my knowledge, were put on by a coalition led by two organizations, Apex Spokane, whose mission is advocating for racial, social, and economic justice for Asians and Asian Americans in solidarity with Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and other systemically oppressed communities, and Pika Washington, an organization dedicated to establishing a cultural home, centering community power, and furthering the wellness of Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities physically, culturally, socially, and spiritually. PICA stands for Pacific Islander Community Association. APIC was originally an acronym too, but the organizers, uh, especially within the Spokane branch, but I believe statewide, of that very organization have asked the community not to use their original name. In the interview, we speak to two of APIC's leaders, Ryan Louie and Sarah Dixit. You'll hear Ryan call the original full title, quote, kind of the organization's dead name. So out of respect for those wishes, I'm not going to say that name here, but that's fascinating, right? This is an active person-of-color-led organization devoted to anti-racist work for their communities and in solidarity with other oppressed communities. And yet this young generation of activist leaders are worried about their own name. The name itself, they feel, is tied up in a sort of cultural erasure. And it's so important that the whole organization, alongside PICA, the two lead partner organizations in this month, rallied around using this month, the month that is ostensibly set aside for their heritage, I'm using scare quotes, you can't see that because this is a podcast, to draw attention to those criticisms. So I put heritage in air quotes because, quote, Asian American and Native, it's hard to even say, Asian American and Native Hawaiian slash Pacific Islander is an imposed category. Created in 1978 by an act of Congress as a heritage week, it was originally only a week, and we'll see why that's funny in a second, and eventually integrated into the census in uh, 1990. It groups wildly different cultures that span literally 40% of the globe. Pull up Google Maps if you want to and, and check, the, check my work here. 40% of the globe and lumps together the American diaspora, at least, of over 60% of the world's population. We're talking everything from Bangladeshi Americans to Tahitians living in America in one category. So it's like, are we really spotlighting this incredible individual and cultural diversity by smashing them all into one month? And, and people's cultural identity is among the most important things any of us have as part of our identity formation and what makes us us. So I don't want to in any way say that's not important at all, but there are other matters that are literally matters of life and death. You'll hear Sarah and Ryan talk about how it papers over legacies of colonial violence, letting us sort of just forget everything that Western imperial societies and, and, and American imperialism did to the Pacific region and Asia. Legacies that span forced migrations, corporate colonialism, colonial colonialism, conquering sovereign nations to use their islands basically as mid-ocean gas stations for our naval fleet. The very weapons of war that allowed us to establish and then defend our hegemony in the Pacific. And of course, also just using people's homes as nuclear test sites. And that's just a small list. And from a contemporary statistical perspective, it completely obscures real disparities in health outcomes and death for many Pacific Islander communities. There is a lot of excess death, unnecessary death, preventable death happening that is not truly understood because of how we lump people together statistically in this country. You're going to hear the word disaggregation a lot in this episode. The, all this lumping together of 60% of the world's population, or at least the American diaspora of those folks, that's aggregation. We're aggregating groups into bigger chunks for whatever purpose, coalition building, statistics. And to some degree, aggregation is necessary when it makes sense and when it represents something meaningful but it's important where you draw the line, where you draw the boundaries, how you group folks. And I hope it goes without saying in the year of our Lord 2020 that you should talk to the people you're considering grouping if you're, say, a government or some external entity. I'm not talking about grassroots community building here or coalition building. I'm talking about external impositions of this kind of categorization. 
state impositions, aside from the cultural racism and erasure of just putting all people sort of west of North America into the same bucket. If life and death statistics of, say, Japanese Americans don't match up with Native Hawaiians, for example, why are we grouping them for public health purposes? It, it actually it obscures the reality of both of those groups, actually. And insofar as there are a lot more Japanese Americans than there are Native Hawaiians, that kind of aggregation can completely dilute and wipe out understanding of what's happening in those populations, at least at a statistical level. And we'll also talk about the problem of using statistics as the only way by which we measure things like public health outcomes in a second. Like, why can't we just listen to communities when they're telling us they're dying? <laughs> why do we have to prove it with statistics, right? So Pacific Islander communities were disaggregated from Asian American populations in the most recent census, but they're still grouped in lots of other government data and statistics, including at the state level and vitally uh, in many public health metrics. Some states and public health jurisdictions have begun to disaggregate that data, and, and that has proved vitally important, especially during a pandemic. In Washington, which is actually one of the few states that has disaggregated those statistics pre-pandemic, we know that Pacific Islander communities were 11 times more likely to die of COVID than whites or Asian Americans. It is a fascinating discussion, and I don't want to wait another second to get to it, but I have two quick pieces of housekeeping at the top here, and we'll save the rest for the end. There is a companion art show to, all, to, well, to this conversation, but also to the entire month that is only open for two more days. Tonight, May, Friday, May 27th, they're actually doing a closing reception at the new Terrain Gallery at 628 North Monroe. That's the new Terrain Gallery, not the old one that was in the Cracker Building on Pacific. 628 North Monroe. I believe it's from 5 to 8 p.m. And if you can't make that, the last day the show runs is Saturday, May 28th. It's a really beautiful blend of art forms and storytelling there's some photography, there's written pieces, there's visual art, there's film. I highly, highly recommend checking it out if you, if you have time. The second thing is that we were originally supposed to also bring on Kiana McKenna of Pico, Washington as well, but she had a last minute conflict and couldn't join us. That's a bummer because Pacific Islander communities are obviously a huge part of this discussion, but we're working to get a conversation with Kiana scheduled soon. There are a lot of really, really fascinating topics to discuss specifically about the Inland Northwest's relationship to colonial violence in, in the Pacific Islands. So we're really looking forward to that opportunity to give this topic more air and more daylight. Right now, though, we talk with Ryan Louie and Sarah Dixit of Apex Spokane. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is range. So can each of y'all tell us your names and, and tell us a little bit about APIC? So Ryan, do you want to start? Sure. So my name is Ryan Louie. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I'm the director for APIC and a co-chair for APIC. And that's where we, APIC Spokane is one of seven chapters of a statewide organization. And we started in the mid nineties after the Welfare Reform Act. And during that time, rights and access to resources were taken away from people. And that really impacted immigrants and citizens. So obviously that's going to impact the Asian community and NHPI community that's Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. And so really since the 90s, we've been more focused on legislation and advocacy on the statewide and local level. But it's been talking with legislators about how different bills and legislation could really help so we've been doing a lot of damage control, I guess you could say. Yeah, my name is Sarah Dixit. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the civic engagement coordinator or organizer for APEC Spokane and the co-chair for our chapter when it comes to the statewide coalition. I'm from Southern California, moved up to Spokane in 2014 to go to Whitworth University, go Bucks, and always kind of struggled with finding 
my community here in Spokane. Um, definitely experienced that cultural shock <laughs> moving up here. Um, but when I found APIC, I really was able to picture myself living in Spokane long term. Um, and I've loved it. Yeah. Awesome. So APIC started when the Welfare Reform Act of 1994 came into effect, but the idea of an Asian American Pacific Islander heritage, well, originally it was a week uh, and then became a month, started in 1978. So when did all of these various communities start getting grouped together, either in the culture or for like governmental purposes? Like what, what was the origin of this grouping that we kind of now know as Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander? Sarah, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, So, yeah, in 1978, the federal government declared May as Asian Pacific American Month, so APA Month. Mm. Uh, No one is exactly sure if this decision was made in efforts to be more inclusive or if it was made just with sparse knowledge that the government had at the time. Um, And there was a lot of U.S. imperialism and other forms of colonization that happened within... um, different Asian countries and within the Pacifica. Um, so with different displacement happening amongst communities. And so um, whether they knew it or not, they were lumping together communities that were very, very different. Mm. And it's just been that way since then, mm. not necessarily with intention that our communities are actually similar or not. Right. Um, so that's what we're seeing now, right, is decades of erasure and um, conflation of issues and attributing things to different communities that it might not be true. So that's why we're here today. And just to help for folks who might not be familiar, when you say Pacifica, that means sort of like the Pacific Islands in general. So what does that encompass? Yeah, so Pacific Islands being like Micronesia, Polynesia, the native Hawaiian islands, gotcha. um, just that general area that often gets... Like Tahiti, like French Polynesia yeah. and stuff. So right? getting more just replaced with just with a PI. Right. Um, wanting to move away from that as well and making sure we include native Hawaiians as well. Gotcha. So I was trying to think about, and and to be clear that this, so this does, this grouping sort of also encompasses Indian American folks. So I was trying to get us think of a way to help like visualize the sheer size and number of people and cultures that this grouping like encompasses. So we're talking about like, say like Western Gujarat state in India, which is like the northernmost point of India or the westernmost point of India to Tahiti, I think Tahiti, there might even be islands east of there that are part of Pacifica, but that's it's literally 10,000 miles. The earth is 25,000 miles around. So we're talking about 40% of the land area and 60% of the world's population <laughs> falls into this, like now what's become a, you know, a government designation. It's, it's wild to me. Like you already, you suggested there's not clear what the rationale on the part of the dominant culture was, but it's hard to say like, well, actually maybe if we're not going to use that, let's say do you guys know what the rationale on the part of the dominant culture was? Was it ignorance? Was it indifference? Was it just trying to create an easy classification for, you know, we're taking like the American centric view of the world. It's like, okay, everything to the East is either Europe and Africa. So everything West is going to be Asian, American and Pacific Island or whatever, you know, like, was it indifference or was it ignorance or, or do you guys know? Uh, I don't think we actually know that could probably be a whole yeah. research paper on who, <laughs> probably. who did it first. And yeah. um, I don't, I can't, sorry, I can't answer that question. <laughs> no, it's all good. Well, it's, it's really interesting. So I think we, a lot of these things are, those of us who aren't, you know, I, I guess, no, I, so I wasn't even born yet and neither of y'all were either. So we, there's so many things that are sort of like inherited down to us that become just part of the cultural fabric and we don't even really know where or why they came from. So that to me is, that's a good answer in and of itself because it partially de- almost demands a little bit of a historical reckoning of understanding how these things even happened to move past them. Um, and I guess it also strikes me that it might be an effort to at least partially erase or paper over Western and colonial violence and maybe to sort of help intermix the, you know, like all the population, the diasporas that happened during colonialism. Like there are plenty of Japanese American people living in Hawaii. That's obviously not where they're from before mm-hmm. colonialism. Um, so regardless of what the intent was, it's kind of had this convenient effect to sort of, you know, obscure colonialism. Yeah, Does totally. Like, yeah. So I, w- I was looking up that 1978 proclamation and it, the, the effort was led by a number of people. But the two, two of the main leaders were senators from Hawaii. One was Daniel Inouye. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Spark Matsunaga. 
they're, they're senators and I think they were both born in Hawaii. So they're representing that entire state, uh, including native Hawaiians, but they're both ethnically Japanese American. Mm -hmm. Um, so it also strikes me that this might be part of an effort to sort of extend the American mythology of the melting pot as well. To me, it sounds like because those folks were Japanese people that lived on Hawaii, there could have been some, there's just a different relationship when you grow up with people on the island, you live on the island versus if you're a Japanese person on the mainland. And um, it would be interesting to hear from them how that came to be. But I think like I grew up in L.A., as well, but Sarah and I didn't know each other. It would have been oh, cool that's if we weird, did. It's kind of yeah. a small town. Yeah, very small. <laughs> um, and I grew up playing on Asian sports leagues, and they were predominantly Asian, and they call them Asian basketball, Asian baseball. But we had mm. NHPI kids, we had black kids, we had white kids, and so it was just the fact that we were primarily Asian. Um, and I think there's a part of inclusion that we wanted to create because. My high school team, I was one of a few Asian people. Hmm. I was also one of the shorter people. <laughs> so then on my Asian team, I was a taller person. So it's like we're we're creating a competition and um, just a more fair competition in that way. But also the cultural aspect of that, too, was like the snacks after the um, high school games were like Gatorade and hot dogs. And after Asian League, it was like spam musubi and teriyaki chicken and like you know really good good food but to say like that we wanted to do everything together i think was primarily because we were friends and Mm. we all grew up together and there was that population and we were pretty mixed together but i think it's also important to realize that just because we play together doesn't mean that our like family lives are exactly the same, right. that individually we're experiencing the same thing. So I think we're just coming into this, this phase of awakening in so many aspects of our life because of the pandemic that we're, we're questioning more things, like really looking into what APA month started at and really going into language and creating a new language. Um. It should also be said that this then became like a census designation, I think, in 1990, and it was there for the 1990 and the 2000 census, and I think it changed a little bit. So, I mean, this is really not just um, sort of a cultural shorthand. Like, this is really the way the the federal government sort of understands population, which we all know, like, impacts how you divvy out federal funds and programs and stuff for individual communities. And so, like, aside, (laughs) aside from, like, you know, the, the differences of like post-game basketball, there's like these really intense solidarity too for being like, I was one of the tallest kids in my entire league, in like my small rural basketball league. Mm-hmm. And so I was a post player and then I get to college and want to play intramurals and everybody's taller than me because like, <laughs> I don't know. So like intense solidarity there where I'm like, they're like, you don't know how to dribble, dude. Like you're not like, what are you doing? I'm like, I was a post player, man. <laughs> You, you also told us in the pre-show that there are hu- really big differences in needs between these communities, as you would expect. Obviously, we're talking about hundreds of different cultures and those like the particularities, the cultural particularities, their interaction with Western culture and specifically, you know, American imperialism, Western imperialism. So we sometimes think about the benefits of like big tent coalitions being able to like, wow, there's a lot of people really pushing for something. But I imagine, especially among like the smaller groups in those culture, in those within that coalition, there are problems that arise, like erasure, or at least like certain things not being heard. So, what? How does that sort of manifest in in this community or in in this in the AANHPI sort of umbrella, Sarah? Yeah, I think a um, a really timely example that happened was because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. When we look at the data, the NHPI community was hit super hard. Um, And Washington state was one of less than 20 states in the U.S. to disaggregate COVID data by demographics, um, including race and ethnicity. Um, So they didn't aggregate um, the Asian community with the NHPI community. So we were able to actually look at how COVID was impacting the NHPI community. And what folks saw was that the rate of death and hospitalization rates of any racial group was 11 times higher um, for the NHPI community than the Asian community. So wow. that's something we would not have been able to see with aggregated data. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge thing that Washington State did that. And we 
can look at that and see if this is happening with COVID, what else is being erased with this aggregated label? Yeah. Um, and what else should we be looking at with a disaggregated lens so that we can better figure out federal funds, like you said earlier? Yeah. Um, and just bringing attention and bringing light to an issue that has existed the whole time, but just had a different label attached to it. And so just to like sort of underline this for folks, what we're talking about here is because Washington State took the step to disaggregate um, Asian Americans from Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, Washington State has those that information, which gives us a sense. Stuff that, to be honest, I was hearing anecdotally from the communities that, you know, I've got Tongan kids that I grew up like, grew up near my my buddy uh, Willie's grandpa grandma lived near my grandma like that the Tongan community Samoan community the, the Marshallese community was really really devastated we know um, but we actually have those statistics at least at the Washington State level but we don't currently at the federal level is that correct Yeah I believe that's correct um, I don't think it's like the expectation right federally to disaggregate Yeah okay. um, so because of that states can decide different departments of health can decide how they are categorizing different deaths, different hospitalization rates. Um, and because of that, there's not consistent data that we can see, even if we can see the trends within our own state. Right. Um, and we know when it comes to federal funds and different categorizations of things, data is really what helps drive that home for people, even when we have so many examples of anecdotal evidence and people's yeah. stories that are also very important. Mm-hmm. Washington State also has one of the larger NHPI communities in America. Is that correct? Am I right about that? I'm not sure of the statistics off the top of my head. That's a great question. (laughs) Yeah. But certainly the West Coast sort of has higher concentrations than like other places in the East and in the Midwest. Is it fair to speculate that like places where those communities are smaller and maybe have less sort of communal mutual aid resources and stuff like the, the numbers might have even been worse? I could see that potentially being true. I think yeah. when you have, um, so here in Washington, at Washington State at least, and even with Spokane, we have large populations of NHPI communities. Um, but when you have an organization um, that can help bring light to those resources, that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about PICA, because a lot of people don't learn how our system works, right? right. And for good reason, and part of the federal government and the interests of people who don't necessarily want communities of color to have voices. Mm -hmm. Um, The system is really confusing. And if you are working multiple jobs in a multi-generational household, you have kiddos, like you just don't have the time, Mm -hmm. um, the privilege of time to advocate at different levels of government um, and to bring voice to this issue that aggregation is harmful. So I'd say in states where there might be smaller communities where there's not necessarily a grassroots organization there to help with that time privilege, that erasure and that devastation could be higher. Right. Another thing we talked about in the pre-show on the the topic of organizations is, and on the topic of funding is, you know, so if we sort of largely, you know, the census happens, we get a sense of how many people sort of get sorted out into each group that partially determines things like funding, obviously, you know, it, determines the apportionment of congressional seats and stuff too. But one of the things we talked about, and I'd love for you guys to unpack this a little bit for us, is that because within the AANHPI grouping, there are larger and smaller communities with more and less sort of political clout, longer legacies of like organizing and just, you know, community wealth, that there can be funding sort of set aside for this big broad category, they can get snapped up by more mature and larger organizations. Maybe so maybe Asian organizations get are better placed to take funding than or to receive funding than um, NHPI communities or organizations might be. So can you talk about a little bit how that disproportionality can trickle in? From my perspective, it might just be that organizing in a separate capacity mm-hmm. is I mean, I won't say it's new, but the voices of NHPI are now getting more, um, they're getting more loud and rightfully so because of the erasure and the disproportionate funding, the aggregation of Asian Americans and NHPI through different groups. And I think, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that there isn't enough funding to go around. It's just the way, how do funders get the word out there to the appropriate groups too? Because Mm. if you are historically a larger quote unquote AAPI group that has been around for a while because of the aggregation, 
you'll probably get more, you're more well known and people will say, Hey, can you do this? Yeah. Versus now when I, I, Pika is relatively new. I want to say they started in the like 2017. Can you guys tell, explain what Pika is briefly? Oh yeah. They're the Pacific Islander Community Association. Okay. And they like, well, not like APIC, but we, they have, uh, their home base on the West side. Gotcha. And that's where there are more NHPI. I mean, there's more, a lot of ethnicities on the West side. (laughs) Right. Um, and so they have a Spokane branch because there are quite a number of people, even though I think statistically it's a less than 1%, but of 500,000 people, that's still thousands of people that will go unaccounted for if no one is speaking up for them. And like Sarah was alluding to or saying earlier that people didn't know that they could like have resources or speak out for themselves. And so now we're trying to tell people that you deserve these resources Hmm. from our history of colonialism and white supremacy, that everything has been taken from us. And now we're having to ask for it. It should be given to us. I'm curious Have you guys heard of a... um... So we should say that Kiana McKenna from Pika was going to be on and she, she had to cancel at the last minute. So, um, anything we're, anytime we're talking about this and you don't feel comfortable answering without, um, a voice like Kiana's in the room, feel free. But have you heard just even anecdotally about, it strikes me that within that community, you know, within the Pacific, the larger Pacifica region, as, as it pertains to America, Hawaii might take a place of prominence just because it's a state and it has its own senators and it has representation, unlike Guam, unlike, you know, the U.S., you know. U.S. held territories. So, have you guys seen that where, like, the, maybe the needs of Native Hawaiians are, or, or at least, like, I mean, back back even to the fact that Hawaii's had two senators since the late '40s. Like, have you have you heard of anything that creating either um, disparities or an overemphasis on on Native Hawaiian needs as opposed to other sort of colonial subject peoples in the Pacific region? That's a good question. I don't know if we can speak to that, um, but I think it's something Kiana could definitely yeah. shed light on. We're going to try to have her back on because um, yeah. there's a whole um, the Monaghan statue thing I kind of want to do an mm-hmm. episode on. Mm-hmm. So. Well, could I add something about from what I understand of Hawaii is that it is different from places like Guam just because it, it became a state. Totally, yeah. And you can see clearly how the Native people there have been forced to nothing. The housing is incredibly inaccessible. I read somewhere that now people are being fined for watering their own gardens and lawns when the golf courses aren't. So Hmm. just thinking of how throughout history, you can see here in Hawaii, when it becomes a colonized state, you can look at Puerto Rico and how they don't have, I mean, we're kind of touching on two different things, but Puerto Ricans don't have the civil resources and rights that people on the mainland do, but they're an American state. Right. Well, and I even think that I, I was clearly just sort of like falling victim to my own sort of like lumping Hawaii in as a monolith too. So it's like, just because Hawaii has state level representation doesn't mean that it's indigenous population has any power at all. And in fact, mm-hmm. it's like every bit as impoverished as, as indigenous tribes in the continental U S. So, right. That's fascinating to think about. Um, outside of COVID, what have, do you guys know anything about the public health dis- and economic disparities uh, among this the sort of big tent grouping? Like it, fe- it feels to me, and again, this please disabuse me of any notion that there's like there's sort of tends to be more wealth in like say the Chinese American community and the Indian American community and the Japanese American community than like the Pacific Island the Pacifica community. So does that feel true to you guys? Yeah, there have been a lot of different graphics that pop up during Heritage Month um, talking about the disparities that exist within different subsets of either the Asian umbrella or the NHPI umbrella. So looking at that can be very eye-opening, right? So similar to any sort of set of data, when you have strong outliers, median means can look very, very different. So there's erasure, I think, for a lot of different communities when it comes to any sort of big label or umbrella term that folks have to fall under, um, especially when we know different life experiences, different um, families and immigration stories and all the things that make up a person can impact their like economic situation. And mm. so I think looking at data like that can be very helpful in terms of 
how are we talking about these issues and making sure when we talk about things like the model minority myth or hmm. uh, aspects where people think Asian folks are supposed to be this like good example, right. why that is harmful to people <laughs> who definitely don't fall under those right. stereotypes that people like to attribute to the community. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we mentioned it a couple of times. This is actually maybe where I want to spend the bulk of the rest of the conversation, this growing movement toward disaggregation that you guys mentioned earlier. So can we say like, what is disaggregation and what's the problem it's attempting to solve? Ryan, go for it. I don't have a dictionary definition of disaggregation, sure, yeah. but a pretty what's fair understanding. Yeah. When you look at a graph of say the Indian American economic status, well, you could see that this graph shows that they make over a hundred thousand dollars, but that in itself is an aggregation of so many people. And I think the question too of data is who are you, um, who are you getting data from? But back to what hmm. disaggregation is, it's clumping people together is aggregation right. in data and in terminology sure. and disaggregating it is pulling it back apart. Sort of. And, and so what's the intent behind that then? Is it sort of like giving a, a degree of like statistical autonomy to these groups? Uh, and what? All right. Yeah. So the intent is, I guess, statistical autonomy, but also when it comes to breaking down our community members, I don't think any of us want to be a number. We're all individuals. <laughs> right. And it's like, if we could get the data from everyone, would that be more helpful? Probably. But the idea behind disaggregation, especially for Asian American and NHPI that have historically been AAPI mm. is to show that our system affects each of our different populations so differently. Like yeah. Sarah was saying earlier about COVID, how NHPI have been having extremely higher death rates, hospitalization rates in Asian right. communities. And if they didn't disaggregate that, it would just kind of look probably more evened out, but, or that Asian if it was AAPI, it would say AAPI all have high hospitalization rates and Asian people might say, oh, we don't have that many. And right. NHPI people might say they're talking about us. Yeah. And that is a form of erasure. And that is that's just something that is inherent in using terms like AAPI in aggregating data. It erases a lot of people that don't fit in that category. Yeah. And you don't want to ever limit people to just statistics at the same time it allows you to say things like hey our community was 11 times like the public health system uh failed our community on order of magnitudes <laughs> orders right. of magnitude worse than right not just the white community but other asian communities and so that then it's a little tried to say knowledge is power but if you have that sort of statistics and you can and you live in a state that at least theoretically is reform minded the way that i think Washington state generally has a reputation for being, you can go to your legislature legislators, or hopefully you wouldn't need to go to them. They would just identify it themselves, but there could be, that's the beginning of at least on the governmental side of things change to, to eliminate those disparities, hopefully. Right. Yeah. I, I think that as much as data is important, I think it's also part of the culture of white supremacy to say, sure. we have to have the numbers to give any resources because if you don't have the numbers then we don't know if you're telling the truth but it's like look right. look yeah, yeah. on the streets look on the news look at the people in your community if you look at spokane if there weren't the health disparities that there were don't you and the racism that comes along with that don't you think that there'd be more people of color more lgbtq plus more people with disabilities more marginalized people that have been excluded would they be more integrated into our community for sure so and then I'm guessing that means there's this, there's another there's a non-statistical side of this. So what what's the sort of the cultural awareness and change that you think disaggregation might bring, Sarah? Yeah, when it comes to like any sort of celebration, right? You want to make sure that the folks who are on screen or on the stage are actually representing your community. Mm -hmm. um, so when you have celebrations that are like API celebration or even AAPI celebration or whatever, um, and then you only see Asian cultures being represented, mm -hmm. what does that do for you, right. right? If you're NHPI and you don't see yourself reflected on that stage. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to just like the whole conversation of representation in general, we've seen this a lot when we talk about different films and TV shows, music, any yeah. sort of art 
and just the impact that that has on young people um, and folks whose stories haven't been historically told in the past, however long those right. things have existed. Right. Um, so just wanting to make sure people know that it's not just statistics and government funds and grants and things like that, but also just the impact that that has for people's identities and knowing that their stories are being continued on, um, especially when there are so many cultures out there that are oral traditions mm. or different ways where their stories aren't necessarily written down um, in our textbooks, right? Like, yeah. as we know, when it comes to <laughs> how history has been told to a lot of people, it excludes a lot of narratives. Um, just all the things, right? Making sure that more voices are being represented and in a way that is honest and uh, celebratory of who people actually are. I want to return to the white supremacy thing for a second, because it strikes me that, oh, and I'm curious, both of you being organizers and activists, how if in, you know, being tied into these communities, maybe a little bit more than I am, like, how are communities starting to think about that, like, two front war? Like, okay, the need for statistics is part of a, a framework of white supremacy that requires minority populations to prove their value whereas white culture just gets the money okay so fuck that sorry mom I'm, <laughs> you can swear on this show but you always have to apologize to my mom because she gets mad okay. um so fuck that while also saying well we do have the receipts and in the short so until until we can dismantle white supremacy we can still give you the receipts like do you guys that, that seems like a fundamental tension of this organizing work that needs to be done so how how are y'all thinking about that like you know can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools, but in the short term, people, th these disparities are real and they need to be addressed. Yeah, I think that tension that you just described is exactly what we're experiencing, especially when it's also all wrapped up in capitalism. The fact that yeah. we have mm -hmm. to be paying attention to funds and funding and um, applying for different uh, grant streams and things like that, that yeah. is frustrating when... We just want to be able to do the work and do it well and serve the community without having to worry about things like money. Yeah. And it also feels like a form of tokenizing, right? When you're like, here are our stories. Like, this is why we deserve this amount of mm -hmm. money from you. And I think there's a lot of things that have to change. But in the meantime, right, there are still people who are dying of COVID. There are people who still need access to funding when it comes to education. And it there's a lot of level of privilege, right, to be able to be like, well, we're then we're not going to accept any funds and just figure it out as we go along, yeah, right? Like, right. it is the reality that we have to be able to serve people in the here and now right. and not wait until everything is figured out um, for the better. So try. I think it's calling things out for what they are as you're doing the work so people know, right? Like, why, why do we even have to be fighting about this and talking about this issue? And it's like, well... Look at the way the nation was set up, who was yeah. excluded. Yeah. And this is the result of that, right? All of us having to continuing to use our time in these ways instead of doing like the actual work, which would be serving the community directly. Mm -hmm. And can I add that? I feel like for us, getting the data points also means that we've connected with that person because there's so many people mm. in the community that don't feel like there's okay. yeah. there even is help that anyone is looking after them or that they they deserve to be heard. So we're kind of, we're doing some of the first outreach for our Asian community to ask them what's go, like, what's life like for you? Mm. Does anyone even ask you that? Like you just yeah. kind of have been born, you do what everyone tells you to do and you fall into the life that you live. And I think the big question that we're trying to share with people is, do you know that there's an alternative? Mm. Do you know that there's something better for you, if you want it, do you know that there's something different? Yeah. So there was a, just a, an offhanded comment in the in the pre-tape where we where you all said there were going to be sort of like concrete things that you were going to be fighting for from the I don't, I don't I can't remember if it was the federal government or the uh, state legislature in the next year to try to get disaggregation really jump started. What 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 steps are you guys taking? I think what is first happening is education on this issue, mm. although our organizations are very much focused about this and are using our platforms to talk about it. A lot of people don't know about it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so that's the first step with any sort of um, action is making sure people know why it's important. Uh, so focus, focusing on that is where we're putting a lot of our efforts and our energy. Mm. Um, we know that 
Pacifica organizations are advocating for August to be NHPI Heritage Month, so to separate out. Yeah, okay. Right? From May being an aggregated month of heritage to have two separate ones. Yeah. Um, so we know that that's something happening at the national level, but also at the local and statewide level, because um, we know sometimes federal actions take a while yeah. to figure things out. So we will be backing that effort uh, when and if they would like our voice to be in it. And that is ultimately what it's about is solidarity on issues. Like disaggregation is not saying that we can't work together anymore. And it's more about like, let's be honest about how this has been playing out for as long as this label has been created and how can we do intentional solidarity work? Yeah. I mean, because disaggregation doesn't necessarily need to mean schism, like separating Mm -hmm. the groups entirely. But that actually kind of perfectly goes to the next question. You guys, are, you're, you're both part of the Asian Pacific Islander Coalition. So like the organization itself is sort of demonstrative of this sort of structure you guys are trying to dismantle. How is that disaggregation changed the structure and maybe the work of organizations like APIC? Um, and what, what works for you? What stuff are you doing sort of internally to model this and just figure out what your your members need and want? Yeah. So when it comes to the name itself, right? If you spell out what APIC says, it's something we are actively fighting against. Um, right. So we've been asking different partners when they refer to our organization to not use our long form name to just call us APIC Spokane as we are in the process of rebranding. So gotcha. we as a group internally are working to see what this looks like for our organization to really put um, things to practice. What does it look like to figure out what we want for this organization and how do we rename ourselves to make sure that we are doing the work both publicly when we're talking about it, but also internally to make sure that all of it is in alignment. We are working with our statewide coalition to address this issue too. It's something since um, Kiana Pika has brought up to us over the last year that we have, Sarah and I really just, it resonated and it made sense to us and we don't have to be APIC even though like I was six years old when it started, but like <laughs> I'm not the same six year old that I was. Why does APIC have to be the same? So <laughs> we're starting that conversation with our different chapters and a lot of the people in APIC Washington are elders and they've been <laughs> doing this work for a long time and they're highly respected and regarded. And we have, it's been kind of a delicate conversation, delicate conversation, but they've been, from what I hear, pretty receptive to mm-hmm. it. And they want to just help us as a younger generation to also recognize that things are changing too. And I think it's, I can't really speak to the West Side organizations, but I know that one organization, um, APCC, they're the Asian Pacific Cultural Center in Tacoma. They do serve a wide variety of people, Asian people and HPI, but they also had, when we visited, there are a lot of white folks there. There are a lot of black folks. So there's... The element of visibility and showing people that our culture and our people are important. And we also want to welcome you to come celebrate it with us, Mm, but also in the ways that we do it. So when it goes back to Asian Pacific Islander Coalition, we're we're calling that kind of our dead name. And we're just like share going by APIC Spokane right now (laughs) until we until we rebrand. And that for us is going to look different because of our populations in Spokane that aren't as integrated already like they are on the west side and so what's really great about our organization as a statewide coalition is that we all have our own autonomy i think they understand that geographically with demographics with politics we all have such different different work to do and so i think there's still the coalition that we are definitely going to have and now it's just a matter of finding something to move forward together in so say five years from now, asking you to put on your prefiguration hat a little bit, like what does, if, if disaggregation attempt or however long it takes to achieve like the, the discrete aims of like the disaggregation piece of what you guys are doing, what, what does it look like in broad strokes in your minds? You guys are envisioning what you're, the, the future you're working for. What is a, what is a disaggregated, but still solidaristic, you know, Asian and North Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander community look like to y'all? I think that future would look like how we do a lot of coalition and solidarity efforts with communities already. Mm. So if we look at Black, Indigenous, POC, 
LGBTQ organizations, right? Not all of us will fall into all those categories all the time. Mm-hmm. So what does solidarity look like in those spaces is probably what it will look like for our relationship as Asians and NHPI folks. Um, so recognizing that we are all in this together with a little high school musical reference, but also <laughs> wow. just wanting to make sure that we are just listening to the unique ways our communities are impacted, but can also be joined together when it comes to different issues. So like code being the example um, that all of us have recently experienced together, mm-hmm. recognizing the ways in which our different communities were all impacted by it, but also recognizing how we could partner up. So we did a lot of events in coalition with different um, organizations to do vaccine clinics um, and doing education outreach. And it wasn't necessarily what's like, oh, well, you're an Asian organization, like you do your own, we're this organization and we're going to do our own is very much a team effort, right? Mm. To figure out what life is like in this two plus year fight and seeing how we are definitely stronger together when we are in coalition with one another, um, approaching common goals of health and safety. So I think that in five years is probably where we're going to be is wanting to continue that work of solidarity in a way that is honoring of our individual identities. What then are the limits of the disaggregation movement? Like if this fight's won, is it smooth sailing or is it just like a foundation for a bigger, you know, bigger moves later? Like what can't disaggregation do, even if you're successful with it? I mean, disaggregation can't solve white supremacy. (laughs) (laughs) It can't solve the background issues, right, of why these um, different topics and different crises impact our communities differently. It's just one way of bringing visibility to the ways in which made up terms can have long-term impacts on communities. Mm -hmm. Especially if we like circle back to our very first conversation of, you know, census and different labels, race changes all the time based on what folks in power want it to mean. So I think disaggregation will be just one of those efforts of trying to figure out how those labels have been harmful for our community, but long-term it would be talking about, okay, but why are these communities of color getting impacted this way when white communities are not? So do you feel like thinking about, you know, the, the many fold different ways colonialism sort of happened in all these different places, maybe among groups like Pika and sort of finding like the way it was literally just like land expropriation you know, among Native Hawaiians and, and large pieces of the Pacific, like, do you feel like disaggregation might allow for not just like the big tent solidarity stuff, but it might allow like if we, if Pacifica folks are given voice, it might make it more obvious to then like enter into coalition with continental indigenous people, you know, people from the continental United States, indigenous folks on like land back and stuff like that. Um, Cause it strikes me that it could like go in a bunch of different ways. Right. Yeah, definitely. That, that gives like autonomy to each of the groups to create coalitions that are both ad hoc, but also like solidaristic and long lasting. Like, and I don't know if this is true, but it does feel like there has been the land back, the sort of continental land. Like, it almost feels like there's more connection between like the Canadian and U- U.S. land back movements than like the stuff that's happening that I see happening in mm. on the Hawaiian, Hawaiian islands about you know reclaiming their land from you know centuries of colonial domination. So. I just wonder if that's an opportunity as well. That'd be cool. I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of common themes that happen when you think of land back, right? It's like, who was here first? Whose land was this stolen from? And how can we amplify those voices to make sure they're the ones who are leading the narrative instead of the ones who are being silenced? Mm -hmm. And that kind of makes me think of like demilitarization and having land back in the entire world and be, uh, you know, <laughs> the removal of of the U.S. and Western military that are yeah eight hundred plus military bases yeah. around the world yeah yeah. So what's the you guys have just had like a, a ton of events um, this month? How how's that gone? And um, do you feel like you you were you've been able to get the word out about just you know Heritage Month in general? But then the, these new sort of moves you're making toward desegregation. Yeah, um, 
there's so there's a lot to this question. One, a lot of people, Asian people that I've spoken to don't know that there's such thing as Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Really? It's, it's a surprise. Yeah. I don't think I actually knew that until I got involved with APIC either. Huh. That wasn't something that was celebrated when I was a kid. We had Lunar New Year and that was it. Right. So this education of the holiday or not holiday, the month long holiday, yeah. <laughs> Heritage Month. Yeah is something that's unknown to a lot of people. And so when we are talking about Heritage Month, I think there's just for our community, there's a lot of relationship building still to be had and to help create the culture of celebrating our heritage together. Um, Within APIC, I think we have drawn a, a specific community that has the ability and the recognition and the compassion to be able to do the outreach to the broader community to show them that they are also important in this community. And for Heritage Month, our focus was a lot on identity and racism because, I mean, not just because of COVID and the anti-Asian racism, but because this is something that we've all experienced and we're recognizing that and going through this process of healing, I feel like together as a group and whether it's doing it with APIC or just doing the portrait series that is in the terrain gallery, I feel like being able to talk about how the, the world around you has impacted you, especially as an Asian person to an Asian person that understands where you're coming from Mm. is just, it's, it's new. Yeah. I didn't get to talk to my parents about this. It's <laughs> like we, there's this huge stigma around mental health in so many communities. And I think particularly in the Asian community, and we're hearing that through our, we did a mental health listening session over this last month too. And it was with youth and young adults. And they all said, my parents didn't talk about this. And yeah. it, it was for various reasons of trying to be small and not make a fuss about anything as an Asian person because you didn't want to be attacked. Yeah. It could have been because you're an immigrant and you are now adjusting to a new world and you don't even have the space to address this. And another is that white supremacy does not allow for you really to, to be emotional and to address your traumas. It, it causes you to just be a cog in the machine and to produce and to be in the capitalist system. So long way of saying Heritage Month for us this year was a huge, huge lift from our team to do something new and different and to not just put our culture and our people on display in the traditional sense, because I think we're also making new traditions. Like Hmm. these are the things that our community does that are a part of our culture because we still talk about where we came from and we're understanding that, but it's in a different way. That's really powerful. Yeah, it does. It strikes me that these various heritage months sometimes feel very different, every different place, but it does feel like there's like a white gaze on the heritage month as an idea, even, and even in conception, it's like, okay, this is the month for you and Mm -hmm. you guys get this month and then y'all get this month. Mm -hmm. So I hear you saying you're kind of like, okay, well, we'll do that. Like, there's still an art show that anybody can come to downstairs from the studio we're recording, and but we're going to use that as an opportunity. You know, it's not just going to be like, uh, like the Shen Yun like Chinese ballet or thing or mm-hmm. whatever. It's going to be like we're going to take a month, do a bunch of portrait. This is really beautiful show in the train gallery. Probably going to be t- well. We, we're going to try to get this out before last Friday if we can. So there might be an opportunity to go see this. That just beautiful portraits. Sarah, you're in one. I, did, Ryan, you did one too, right? Not as beautiful as Sarah, oh, though. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> uh, but it, with, with like a little dialogue um, of like, this is who I am. This is my life. This is, you know, where I come from. This, and this is who I am as a person. Like, here's my cultural background, but here's who I also am as a person. And it, it's really, really beautiful. So, well, well Sarah, how do, you, how do you feel like the month's gone? I think what you said earlier kind of made me nod my head furiously. I didn't want to hit my mic. Um <laughs> Just the idea that, you know, Heritage Month sometimes can feel like that white gaze. And I think sometimes with how some folks will organize around Heritage Months, they are very much oriented with 
come try our food. Here are our fun outfits. Like here are some dances. Right. Without paying attention to the hard parts, right? Of like, mm-hmm. here's how we've been excluded. Here is the pain that our communities experience. Here's a shooting that recently happened against our community, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many examples of how Heritage Month can feel like a, yay, here's this beautiful culture that exists in the U.S. Good example of melting pot. Let's move on to the next month. Yeah. So that's something that we really wanted to consider as we planned around what events we wanted to have in Spokane for Heritage Month. It was more so what do we feel like is a narrative that is missing when we talk about Heritage Month? How have events been planned in the past for white people to experience our cultures Mm. versus events that were more so about us, right? Where fellow Asian folks could come and be seen often for the first time, right? Especially when you think of art galleries, right? Yeah, for sure. Oftentimes not filled with pictures of Asian folks or with an Asian photographer talking about issues like racism. Um, So just all of it, trying to be very intentional to make sure it wasn't something that people could come experience, feel good about themselves and leave. Especially when you think of if Heritage Month is really to talk about different histories and different cultures who have been here for a while or who have immigrated here, but who call this place their home. But it's because like our history books don't include our stories. Different educational systems just don't include narratives that aren't of the dominant white Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Christian, evangelical, whatever right. label you want to give it. So wanting to take all of that into how we pictured this May looking. All right. Two, two quick questions to end. What can people in Spokane and the, the wider range, region do to help? Whether that's if, if you're an Asian person listening to this and you haven't heard of APIC or just, you know, the, the non-Asian, non-Pacific Islander, non-Native Hawaiian community in Spokane, like what can we do to help move this forward? I think a big one is moving away from using terms like API, AAPI, even AANHPI without like an and showing that they're two different communities. I think because we only have the circles that we have and the people we interact with um, and the folks viewing our content. So wanting that to be something that happens through relationship, right? So if Mm. you have someone who's like, oh, you're going to go to that AANHPI celebration being like, oh, we don't use those terms anymore. Right. Or if you know of someone who maybe has an organization that is that way, asking, do you have representation of NHPI community in your leadership, in your mm. board? Is this just like a label you're using just because it's always been that way or because there's intentional outreach and work being done in both communities distinctly? Because um, that's another part of disaggregation, right, is that internal accounting of being like, are we actually this organization that says we are serving this full community in all of its diversity? Or is there a majority being shown here? Hmm. And how do we look at that and take stock of that and respond accordingly? Do you have anything to add, Ren? I feel like for everyone listening to this, it, it brings up to me a sense of accountability and responsibility and to kind of uh, repeat what Sarah was saying is to like speak up and Hmm. um, to work with us and to support this movement of agency and power that we all should have and that it will and it could be scary to think oh we're going to separate and now we have to go do our own thing it's not necessarily you have to go do your own thing but there are groups that exist APIC whatever we rebrand to work with the Asian community. (laughs) Pika is here. I think there's enough advocacy organizations in the community that actually care and are doing the work for our community to be a part of and to, you know, follow our work, join in on our conversations. We've been doing a bunch of panels over Heritage Month too with Eastern Washington University with, uh, I was just on another one. Words are escaping now, but we talk about this all the time. We're in a, I, you could say we're in a panel, we're having a discussion right now about it. It's to yeah. listen to the different narratives and the different asks for people to work in solidarity and not remain in the white supremacy mentality that we have to be. When, when we say doing things together, I think there's an element of togetherness that is that we want to do together, do together side by side, that's solidarity, not doing together to say 
we're going to do this for you. And mm, like, mm-hmm. you can just jump. I mean, I'll probably stop there. Yeah. Just think it. about what together really is and to open, <laughs> right. to open your eyes about what the groups are doing in the community. So just real quick, I'm going to ask a question about hope and that's how we're going to conclude. But so as, and I know we, you guys have kind of done, uh, like the KFC treatment to the name because there's a placeholder for like what the eventual new name is going to be. So I get that getting that all of this stuff is very much under discussion and in sort of transition and like the whole NH part was just added kind of recently to, to sort of surface native Hawaiians as of right now, like what's, what is the proper way to sort of talk about this, the aggregated group? Should, is it like AA and NHPI? Is that the way we should go about it? Yeah. And it could be a slash AA and NH slash PI. I mean, that's just such a mouthful that people are going to want to break those groups apart. Really they really will. Hard to- <laughs> yeah. So that's why disaggregation is so important because yeah. you won't even think about putting them together. Yeah, right. yeah, totally. Okay. So we'll fix that at least in the intro. I feel a little bad that I think, I feel like I've been saying it wrong the whole interview, but we'll, we'll, we'll fix it for the intro. What gives you, both of you hope in this moment? Like either how this sort of month has gone or just the, the overall trend. Um, yeah. What, what, where do you find hope? Ryan, you want to start? Well, I'll start with recognizing that we're still in the pandemic, like this isn't gone and that we've been doing a lot of work this whole time and pushing really hard to do events and to get vaccination and to get people in the know that we exist and that we're here for people. And that has definitely been a a huge lift. We did this all in the span of a year. We've been doing so much. And I just want to recognize all the work that our team has done and all the supporters that we've had and all the funders who have helped us along the way. And to me, that was hope to start with, that so many people believed that we could do the work for the community and not like, oh, we're just going to nonchalantly say Apex is going to do it. But we've been doing it since the 90s. Yeah, We've been around and now we've changed our capacity and work to do more than just the 30,000 foot legislative anti-racism work now it's building the community in the ways that will best serve us and it's building the relationships and i think what i've seen over the last year is we've really really grown a community around the college community and Mm. that has been really hopeful because we're sarah and i talk all the time about we want more college students to stay i mean we're the college students that sarah stayed i moved and i came back but (laughs) so many people that are people of color lgbtq plus that grew up here they're they want to peace out right when they can yeah but we want to show people that there is a home for them here and that there's a community that cares about them and that there are resources for them to thrive and that the, that's the hope too, I think, in our work is that there is this alternate future that we can all create together and it just hasn't happened yet. And that's what is really exciting is we get to make it up. Everything that's happened up until this point has been because of white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, people that never had us in their vision for the future. And so now mm. we're going to be able to create that future for ourselves. Awesome. Sarah? I think Ryan put it beautifully. Um, <laughs> I think hope looks like, I don't know. I think it's, I've recently had some folks reach out to me who are Asian, um, just talking about how it's meant a lot to see them represented in different spaces, Hmm. which has meant a lot. I'm very much a young person. And so considering that I could be like that model for someone to be like, oh, like I can do this too, feels both very honoring and very scary at the same time. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, but that is a lot of hope, right? That yeah. other people now are in a space where they're like, oh, there are a lot of people who do look like me in this place that I definitely didn't feel like could be my home. And having people consider different options so that they can stay in Spokane has given me a lot of hope of what the future could look like here. And just like Ryan said, we've both been in this more leadership role for APIC for a year now. It'll be a year in June for officialness. Mm-hmm. Um, and just looking back on how we imagined we'd be a year from then, certainly I think we were way ahead of what we thought we'd wow. be back then. So I think that gives me a lot of hope looking back um, and seeing all the connections we've made with different people here who we did not know a year ago um, and just how big 
and beautiful this movement is. And just knowing that this is up to all of us working together um, gives me a lot of hope that it's not just on like one person's shoulders to figure it all out, that it's a community effort and that we have a lot of great people out there who are wanting to be in this fight with us. That's awesome. Ryan Louis, Sarah Dixit, thank you so much for coming on Range. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Luke Baumgartner. Did I say your Baumgarten. Baumgarten. Uh, thank you, Luke Baumgarten. One final heartfelt thank you to Ryan and Sarah. Thanks to Val Ozier for producing. Thanks to Stephen Smith for editing the interview and dialing in our levels. And thanks to all of you for listening. Hopefully this interview gave you some meaningful and, and rich context about a topic that isn't widely known and that you didn't hear in other media outlets. And, and if it was meaningful, I'm sure you know where I'm going here. We would really appreciate you becoming a paying member of Range at rangemedia.co. Then you click the subscribe button. You can sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already, and you can also become a paying subscriber for either $10 a month or $100 a year. That is all the plugging I'm going to do for today because of there's already enough plugging of my sinus passages and I don't want to subject you to any more of that. Just know that, and this is, this is real, every time I see a membership come through, it takes my mind off of my sinus pressure for just a moment. So if you care about my well-being in the slightest, consider becoming a member and giving me that dopamine hit. I feel like I should cue the Sarah McLaughlin music that runs before the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the SPCA ads at Christmas time. But rest assured, if you become a member, I will see it and I will feel it in both my heart and in my sinus cavities. (laughs) All right. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.